Welcome back to another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm with my compassionate co-hosts, uh, Maria Jose Benita. Uh, oh, man, you're not even trying anymore. <laughs> you're not even trying anymore. I was so, okay, so excited right, right. to listen to your words. Right, here today. we go. My endangered uh, co-hosts, Mario Sikora and Maria Jose Munita. So what do you mean endangered? Hey, endangered, yeah. What are we, yeah. like white rhino or something? Or what are we talking about? Yeah, I'm about to get extinct <laughs> or, yeah. or what? I mean, there's a certain... Is our podcast going to be canceled? <laughs> because I, there's I, a know. certain rarity about you two, you know? Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Could you say more? Good, good uh, no, I'm yeah. gonna. I'm going to not. Um, <laughs> today, today we are jumping into the core quality at Enneagram type two, which is compassion. Maria Jose, let's start with you. Uh, when you're talking um, about this core quality of compassion at point two, where do you begin most, most of the time when you're teaching it? I like um, the analogy of the baby. And I think I've mentioned this before. And for people, it's a lot easier to understand these concepts with something tangible that they can relate to. So when you think about the baby and how they feel this immature version of compassion that they're born with and when they can connect or merge or feel this union with the emotional states of others, when they're just born and a baby cries, the other baby cries as well. Are they thinking about it? Are they, uh, do they know what the other uh, baby is feeling? It just happens. So that's what we're born with. And for people who are uh, hearing about this for the first time, it's just easier to kind of resonate with that. We, we can add to <laughs> and, that. And, and I copied, copied that from Mario, so I'm sure that he does that as well. <laughs> yeah, so, so Creek, I, I like to start off talking about babies in the maternity room. No. Um, so, uh, you know, we can see this in ourselves just about how we feel when we're around people with strong emotions. There's something called emotional resonance where if we're around somebody who's depressed and sad, we start to feel depressed and sad. If we're around somebody who's happy and upbeat, we start to feel more happy and upbeat, right? There's just this thing about the brain that non-consciously perceives and experiences what other people are experiencing, right? It's, you know, when somebody hits their finger with a hammer, we, we all go, ouch, Right? Because we kind of can imagine what that feels like or have experienced it or whatever. So th there's this, you know, compassion is all about feeling what other people are feeling and being moved to do something about it. Okay, So what, what's happening with the baby is that they're just reacting to it. Okay, They're not necessarily move to do something about it, although they might be. We don't really know what babies think, okay? So, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're saying, if, oh, I have to do something about that baby's if they distress. Could, yeah. in the, if they could walk, they would. Right. Mm. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it's uh, compassion in its mature form is the ability to feel what other people are feeling and to uh, want to do something about it, but to do it in a way that also has boundaries. 
okay, also protects oneself. And this is why compassion gets stunted early in life, because we don't have those tools to create good boundaries and to protect ourselves. Okay, so uh, compassion starts to feel painful to us in some ways, right? If we experience other people's pain too much, it's we're feeling pain and we don't want to feel that. So we start to stunt it. We start to cut ourselves off from the emotional states of others, particularly the negative ones. And that's where the stunting of compassion starts. Yeah, I having this in mind, every time I see my youngest daughter um, see somebody begging in the streets, she feels compelled to, uh, she first feels the pain of the person. I can see her suffering and I can see her wanting to do something about it. But if we did something about everyone who is suffering like that, I mean, we can't, we don't have the means to do it. And it's interesting because I try not to tell her things to rationalize it and to set the boundaries in a dysfunctional way, but also know that she needs to set those boundaries. So you need to go through the process of stunting that, that kind of compassion in one way or the other, because if not, it's just too painful. A lot of what I'm hearing from you all is, um, seems to be pointing to the connecting points. So last week, if you haven't, if you haven't checked out last week's episode on, on the uh, core quality of eight, I suggest you do that. We're going to be moving around um, eight, two, and four today. So as we're, as we're talking about the core quality at point two, can you give us a brief, a brief explanation as to how the other two points interact with uh, point two? When it comes to compassion, there's a great video on this in, um, in the TED Talks by the uh, Buddhist teacher, Joan Halifax, who works, uh, who does hospice work with people. So she works with dying people. And she's talking about how we cultivate compassion, but she's also talking about how we need strength to be compassionate, right? If you don't have requisite strength, she, she calls it a soft front and a hard back. Um, if you're not strong, you won't be able to endure compassion like Marie Jose was suggesting with her daughter. I remember one time walking with one of my sons and he was, you know, eight or nine years old. We were in Center City, Philadelphia. And he says to me, you know, Dad, every time I see somebody homeless, I want to give them all my stuff. But you know what? I really like my stuff. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, so he was conflicted of which we all are, right? It's that we feel this pain, but we can feel helpless about it. So in order to go in and do something about it, we need to be strong. And we need to also practice the, um, the qualities of point four. The, the core quality there is individuality. Okay. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about individuation in a bit. But it's this idea of recognizing that I am me and this person is this person, right? Because if we merge too much with the other, then we lose our capacity to act skillfully and to exercise mature, skillful compassion. Because mature compassion is rooted in the ability to have boundaries, 
right? If I can't protect myself emotionally, I will burn out in this work that I'm doing. So I have to create this individual individuation, right? This separation between me and the other and act from that place rather than the immature version of it, which is non-individuated, right? I've lost my, um, my sense of separation. Okay. And people always think boundaries is about put, are about putting up a wall between us and the other person. They're not, right? They're understanding the appropriate borders. I can give this much, and I'm happy to give this much, but after that, I need to recharge. After that, I need to take care of myself, right? So I have to come back and focus on me. I have to recharge my strength. And those are big things that are related to points four and eight. I like to think of boundaries as more of... Uh where relationships begin rather than, than uh, where they end. It's mm -hmm. that it's the starting point of a healthy relationship, um, not just mm -hmm. keeping you out of it. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's a barrier, mm -hmm. right? There's a difference between a barrier and a boundary. For sure. So let's, let's define our terms here. Uh, Mario, compassion. So from a dictionary definition, perspective. Compassion is the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Okay. I, I feel what you feel. I want to do something about it. Uh, that's similar to the way we talk about it, but you know, we talk about it just slightly different. It is about union with the emotional states of others. And again, with a desire to help in some way with a desire to act upon that union. But it really is, you know, I was thinking about this in um, reflecting back, what's the difference, what's different energetically between compassion and um, vitality. And energetically, I, I, I hate using that word because it doesn't mean anything, right? But uh, what does it feel like? when we're expressing vitality versus what does it feel like when we're expressing compassion? And whereas vitality is sort of an outward flowing of something, right? It's, it's me exerting something out into the world. Compassion is moving outward, but it's also allowing something in. Okay. We talked about you know, how when somebody's feeling, you know, vitality, it's almost like their skin disappears, right? Their, 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 you know, their sense of separation from, uh, I, I know that's an awful image. It's not like one of those Chinese, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, museum pieces or anything. Uh, but it's, it's, it's like the, you know, the, the barrier disappears, the boundary disappears, but it's a flowing outward, right, of having an effect on the world. Whereas there's, there's kind of a moving outward in compassion, but it's more of absorbing things inward as well. Okay. So whereas with vitality, I might be kind of expressing my affect onto you, but you're the one feeling the impact of that rather than me. Whereas with compassion, I'm moving towards you, but I'm embracing something in as well. And we still feel merged to some extent, but it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a commingling of things, whereas vitality is not. Could you give an example? Because I do see how those, oftentimes, I'm when you 
you may think you're feeling some level of compassion, but really you're just trying to resolve the tension in someone else in order to not have to feel the uncomfortability. So I could see, I could see only the moving outward as a way to avoid feeling the discomfort of suffering in front of you. Compassion is more a state than an action. And it's a state that makes you want to alleviate the burden of the other person, but it's still a state. It's not something necessarily that you're doing. What you do with it is a different story. Mm. And that's why these core qualities are not something we talk about all the time because it's these states you need to try to feel them yeah. and we try to explain them with words and definitions but it is something you feel and you either feel kind of connected or uh, this union or or not mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. An example that's coming to my mind is, you know, and Riose is absolutely right, right? It's it's hard to talk about a feeling. It's and and this is why poetry exists because you know you have to talk around something, right, or art or so forth. Um, but an example is the difference between it's the difference between love and lust, in a sense. Okay, so love is a feeling of being merged with someone else, a feeling of a loss of boundary. Okay. When you're in love with someone, you lose the sense of separation. Okay. Whether it be a child, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a lover, whatever it is. Whereas lust in a more general sense, rather than the description of the vice, it's about more going outward in a sense. Okay. It's, <laughs> I don't know how far this is going to work if it works at all, but, but it's, <laughs> um, so vitality is about this need to express in a way that has an impact. Compassion is a way of engaging in a way that creates union that's beneficial to both parties, in a sense. There's a receptive element when it comes to compassion that's not necessarily there when it, we're talking about vitality. It's acknowledging the shared experience where vitality is, here is my experience. Yes, that's, that's a good way to put it. And when we think about what vitality brings, I'm sorry, what compassion brings to us uh, in a broader sense, it's about a sense of community, for example, right? It's about a sense of the transcendent, of being part of something bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. okay? Whereas vitality is just about, again, expressing myself out into the world and perhaps creating something bigger than myself. But compassion includes losing one's sense of separation mm. from the other. It's in some ways it's the golden rule on some level of, of taking care of. Yeah, see, I, I think it transcends the golden rule. 
Right. I think it's I think it's more than mm. that. You, you know, it's interesting to look at the golden rule from a philosophical perspective, right? So, um, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, what if you're a masochist? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, sure. You know, so there, there are philosophical flaws with the, the, the golden rule, but there are not philosophical flaws with compassion in the way that we're mm-hmm. talking about it here. So there's there's a term, and I think it emerged around 2020. This term is compassion fatigue. And this seems to be a very a prevalent thing, especially since the pandemic and all the all the different things that have happened since then, um, where especially if you're on the Internet ever, you're required to deeply care and be affected by every point of suffering that's happening in the world. And I've I've had my own issues of, of trying to figure out where's my role here? What is, what's the thing I can actually affect? I can feel deeply for all those who are affected by whatever, but what am I doing with that, with that felt compassion? So the immature version is this reflexive union. So I see somebody suffering and I want to go out and help. I feel like I need to, or, um, the mature version is more managed and intentional and you can decide. It sounds easy. I know it's not easy, but uh, you can decide, I don't know what resources you have in order to do that or uh, how much you want to do that or what, and we're going to get into the accelerator uh, with this, but what does the other person really need? because maybe they don't need what you think they do. So there are different aspects of this mature compassion that it's more managed, intentional, and requires the accelerator that it's cognitive empathy in order to kind of nurture this more mature compassion. Yeah, compassion fatigue is the exact reason why compassion becomes stunted in us yeah. in childhood, right? It's just, I just can't do this all the time, right? It's, it's like we're walking around like this big open wound or this exposed nerve of compassion. And at some point we need to say, you know what, I just, I just need to protect myself from it. And we develop mature compassion by learning to protect ourselves and continue on with the experience of an expression of compassion because otherwise we just can't do it. And the more sensitive we feel to it, the more vulnerable we feel, the harder we can get, right? The more we strive to protect ourselves. So um, this is exactly what the problem is. So learning good management skills, self-management skills. And again, this gets us to the, uh, the accelerator of self-discipline that we talked about last time uh, as something relevant here, but learning to manage our exposure to compassion, you know, to, to suffering, for example, uh, learning to develop more strength, more equanimity, right? More balance. Uh, equanimity is the, the virtue associated with point four to see things in perspective. And so there's an element, uh, Maria Jose mentioned the um, accelerator of point two, which we call cognitive empathy. 
There's a difference between affective empathy and cognitive empathy. And affective empathy is I just feel what other people feel. Okay. I just, I just, or I feel because other people are feeling, right? It might not be the same thing that they're feeling, or it might not be an accurate reflection, but it's some feeling based on that. Whereas cognitive empathy is the ability to kind of step back and say, okay, what is it I'm feeling here? Right. So there's this sort of metacognition over the, you know, or this, um, this observation and analysis of what I'm feeling so we can regulate it so we can test it. Am I feeling what you're actually feeling? You look really sad to me. Are you sad today? Okay. Instead of saying, oh, you look really sad today. Give me a hug. And the person might, you know, they might not want a hug. They might just have gas or something. Right. So, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we, you know, so, so, you know, we had cognitive empathy is about checking our impulses and this gets us better at having more empathy, right? Because what we see people doing all the time is say, oh, I'm so empathetic. Look how sad that person is. And look how happy that person is. When we really don't know, so we don't know how accurate our empathetic assessments of those people are. But when we think about it, when we check up on it, when we ask, we actually do have this opportunity to refine. Ah, when Maria Jose gets this look on her face, this is what it means. You still okay. don't get that, but... Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I didn't say I was any good at this, right? I'm just, you know. Yeah, yeah well, and I yeah. think that it also includes, uh, and I think you mentioned it, the our own emotional regulation so that we don't get overwhelmed by the uh, feeling the empathy. And it also includes really understanding what the other person needs because compassion, we said that it, it also includes the uh, desire to alleviate uh, the other person. And when we only feel affective or emotional empathy, we tend to project what the other person needs mm. uh, from what we think, as Mario was saying. But with cognitive empathy, we think more around kind of taking more perspective and see what the other person really neat. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'll give an example. I have a friend whose son has a lot of difficulties since he was a baby. And she has had to make very, very tough decisions around surgery that he has had to undertake because she wants to, because she knows that that will be better for him in the future. But in the short term, he suffers a lot a lot and I can't tell you how much he suffers and she's strong enough that she can endure all the process of these surgeries and all the periods after the surgery which take months because she knows that that's the best for him now is she cold as a snake <laughs> uh, and doesn't uh, surrender to his demands to do well so many things no she feels so much compassion but she has enough strength to endure that mm. and that to me is real compassion but that requires this cognitive empathy to really assess what is it what is the best thing for him and be able to go through that mm. lisa feldman barrett is having a moment right now on the internet 
her she does a lot of work with the brain and how emotions are made and that sort of thing and the thing that um a lot of her work was based off of was this idea of people being able to assess emotions in themselves and then read emotions on others and through her study it's it's just it's quite apparent that there's only like a I don't remember the exact numbers, but there's just just a marginal amount of um, advantage or or accuracy. Maybe that's not the word, but we can't really read people's faces and their emotions. There's just there's a little bit of an edge if you know the person, if you have enough data recognition and pattern, whatever. But when you say you're good at reading people like (laughs) you're probably not. Um, Yeah. And, and, and that is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> see everybody thinks they're good at right. reading people yeah this is the this is the problem right it's everybody thinks they know what other people are thinking or what other people are feeling and so forth and they don't we can get better at it through the practice of cognitive empathy and through particularization right so the same look on you know your face creek uh, you know on Jose's face might mean something completely different So, uh, you know, learning to step back. And one of the other things about um, cognitive empathy is perspective taking, right? The ability to sort of step back and see not only the other person's worldview, but the bigger picture in general, right? What's that person going through in their life right now, okay? Not just what's the look on their face, but, you know, what's happening in you know, his world and how, how might that be part of this? And let me learn more about what the person's going through rather than just assuming. And this is where the two struggles, right? Because they feel stunted in this core quality and because they really want to kind of cut it back, they tend to over rely on striving to feel connected as a way or as a substitute, in a sense, a replacement for real compassion. And they often end up being, you know, helpful in ways that are not appreciated or ways that are not needed. Another thing that uh, cognitive empathy helps with is checking. So I have these hypotheses of what the other person is feeling, what they need. Then I have to go out and check with them if that's what they really need. Now, there are times like with my uh, friend whose son might not have the perspective, enough of a perspective to say, yeah, I need all these surgeries, you know, but, uh, but most times we can check with the other person, is this really how you're feeling? And would this be something you would appreciate uh, what I'm planning to give you? Because a lot of the times, a lot of times it's not what they need because we don't know how to read people that well. And that's something to benefit from because what we're saying some, sometimes is taking us, okay, so are you saying that twos are not good with empathy? Or I think that they're naturally good. They try, they feel it naturally, but they would benefit from developing more cognitive empathy so that they're more effective, that they can really help people more, that they can be of more use and end up feeling more of these true compassion. Yeah, I, I find sometimes, and it's not just just with twos. It's it's there's plenty of other people as well. But if I'm if I'm sharing something personal or emotional on some level, 
the re- the reception can almost be overblown. They're they're experiencing too much emotion, <laughs> almost taking away from the fact that I just shared something personal, and all of a sudden it becomes about their emotions, about my emotions, instead of hey, I'm being vulnerable here, and this yeah, it just ends up not being very helpful, <laughs> and and quite yeah. deterring actually. Yeah. yeah, let me have my own experience, please. The the irony to compassion is that sometimes, oftentimes, the best thing to do is to do nothing, right? It's just to be there with mm-hmm. the person and experience it, right? And sometimes that's the best way to alleviate somebody's suffering is just to sit with them, okay? Um, you, you know, and, and, and one of the challenges that we all have um, and I think twos might wrestle with this more than the other types, is a desire to do something to change the other person's experience or state. You know, we talk about the pride at point two as the, as the vice. It's this idea that I know what you need, okay? I know what will make this better, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to expect you to receive this because I'm doing it for you. Well, not really, because sometimes what we just need is for that person to just be with us and maybe ask, is there any way I can help? Mm-hmm. And, and then respect it if they say no. Okay? Or respect you know, what they request, even if you don't think or you didn't think that's what they really need. So core quality at point two is compassion. And then we have um, individuality at point four and vitality at point eight. Talk about these dynamics a little bit more in depth. So we've touched on this a little bit, but so again, with the, in order to be compassionate, we have to have strength. Okay. We have to have resources, a resource of energy a resource of stamina, a resource of strength so that we can withstand the pain we feel. And again, I, I really encourage people to watch the Joan Halifax video. You can just Ted, you know, search on TED Talk and uh, Joan Halifax. She captures this better than anything I've ever seen before, where she talks about, you know, in order to be truly compassionate, you have to be strong. And this is why some of the most you know, compassionate people out there and the most effective people out there are actually eights who get into their ability to exercise compassion, okay? Uh, Because they, in order to get that compassion, they have to go through the work of building healthy strength and vitality, okay? So it kind of equips them to be you know, uh, capable in this area. Now, of course, it's not just eights, and most eights don't have that quality, but it's not, a, you know, it's something that we see. So we have to have the strength, we have to have the vitality, we have to have the energy to practice compassion. And then when we start looking at point four, again, it's that sense of who I am. So the core quality at point four is individuality. It's this sense of, This is who I am independent of others without, you know, without these sort of, uh, you know, distorted identifications with the people around us. And so in order to be good at 
empathetically or compassionately reading other people. We have to have some sense of who we are. Okay. One of the things that twos can struggle with is the loss of a sense of who they are, of what their own desires and what their own pleasures and biases and you know needs are, because they're, they, they, they want to prematurely merge with the other. So they do so without proper boundaries. At point four, the individuality, we kind of let go of those preconceptions, not so much the preconceptions, but the identifications. And we say, okay, this is me. This is what I need. This is who I am. Now from this position, I can go out and be of service to others. It's, to me, it's fascinating every time that we look at the accelerators of the point, I mean, the one point and the two connecting points, it's really hard to set them apart. And when you yeah. work on one, it affects the other two somehow. Completely agree. And this is why it's so important to understand our Enneagram type, because it tells us here are the key things you need to work on that will have the biggest impact, mm. right? They'll have sort of that spillover effect. Um, you know, you start to notice if you're you know, a two, for example, the more work you do around what real compassion is, the more vitality you'll start to see in yourself and the more a sense of your own identity you'll start to see with yourself, even if those are not necessarily the things you're focused on developing. Yeah. And that works with all the points as well. You'll see ones who, you know, are, are trying to develop objectivity. You'll start to see them becoming more joyful when, uh, which is the, the core quality of point seven, yep. you'll start to see them having their own sense of identity, which is the quality of point four. Yeah, and but those core qualities, I think, have like a different flavor. Like, oh sure. For example, with let's say type, I mean points one and two, they both have a connecting point to four, and when I think about what we've said around individuality for the, for a two it's more about my boundaries and my needs and who am i and all of that and as a one i think that that individuality also has to do with what i think what's good for me what's not the standard but has a different there are different aspects of that individuality that apply more to a one than to a two this is why we have to be careful about the Enneagram becoming too formulaic on the one hand, because we can start to miss that very point that Maria Jose made there. We start to assume that these qualities look the same for each Enneagram type and they express themselves the same way in each one of us but they don't, right? They'll take different shapes and different forms and they'll have a different flavor to them almost and a different feel to them almost um, because they're filtered through that lens of the person's dominant issues, okay? Their, their dominant drives. So we have to be really careful about making the Enneagram too much of a formula. On the other hand, we have to be careful about not understanding how interrelated all these things are, mm. right? And so we have to see the Enneagram as a map 
of qualities in this way. And that doesn't come from walking on one point of the Enneagram to another and saying, oh, what would it feel like to be an eight if I'm a five? No, that's nonsense, right? That's Enneagram cosplay. And this a great term I picked up from somebody else today. So acknowledgments to Abby. But um, it's it's pretending that I'm experiencing something. It's it's this, well, what would it be like to be this instead of actually feeling it? It's about really working on these qualities so that we get a sense, a very visceral sense of what these things feel like. There's a difference between imagination and action. And I think imagination is is a tool, but it is a limited tool mm. until you actually go do something with that imagination. And, and that applies to everything, right. right? I mean, again, we can we can read about love in books, but it's not the same thing as actually being in love with someone, right? We can we can see a meal in a picture. But that's not and we can imagine what it tastes like. But that's not the same as tasting the meal. Okay? And, and this applies to everything. So I, I just, I get really frustrated at so many of the academic and, you know, artificial applications of the Enneagram. We, we've done a lot of defining our terms and talking about all the different relations. So what are some practical ways we can enact cultivating compassion and the connecting points? Yeah, so one of the main ways is... Um Practicing cognitive empathy, as we just mentioned. So that to us, that's kind of the first main practice that we have. Another way is to work on the strategies. And the strategy at point two, striving to feel connected, it's not like we need to get rid of that in order to feel compassion. It's striving to feel connected is only a not good enough substitute for compassion, but it's not but bad in itself. What we can do is broaden it. It's make it more flexible, more permeable, working with the awareness to action process and making it mean more things so that it's more adaptive and it will get closer to compassion as we do that. Can you be just a little bit more specific on what does it mean to work <laughs> on cognitive empathy? Okay, so work on cognitive empathy, the accelerator means that once I am facing a uh, situation and I'm feeling this compassion or think I feel this compassion and want to practice empathy, I think I've, we first need to experience the affective empathy. Like, what is it that I'm feeling? Yeah. And uh, what do I think this other person is feeling? What do I think they need? Or what do I feel they need? And then get this perspective that Mario mentioned. Also, uh, check with them. What do you need? And only when I've, I've taken this perspective, I've analyzed what I can offer, what the person needs, check with them that that's really what they need, I can just uh, do, act upon it. So it's doing that, but not acting reflexively, uh, just automatically offering something I believe they need because that's just projection. 
that's the cognitive empathy. So when I check, when I take perspective, when I understand, when I think about it, I can nurture this more mature version of compassion. I know better how this person is feeling, what they need. I can feel this union with something that it's closer to the truth, what, to what's really there, and not with what I think it's there. There's a scene in, um, I'll, I'll add a couple of things to that if, if I could on, on what, you know, things we can do. No, I mean, you, it, not to what you said. What you said was perfect. Um, other things we can do is to, number one, just get into the practice of exercising kindness. And this applies to, we're not just talking about twos here. Remember when we're talking about these core qualities, we're talking about the core quality in each one of us that, you know, it's the starting point for twos, but it's something we all need to develop. And so one of those things is just practicing acts of kindness, okay? just, you know, reminding ourselves to be nice to people, to, you know, compliment people that we see, say hello to strangers, you know, whatever it is, hold the door open for people, whatever small acts of kindness we can start cultivating, we want to start doing that. The other thing is to think through our experience of decision fatigue, I'm sorry, compassion fatigue, and the suffering we feel when we feel, quote unquote, too much compassion, okay, and without the lack of boundaries. I've been thinking as, as we've been talking here about the ending of the movie Schindler's List. And, you know, so Schindler was the guy who saved uh, Jews in the concentration camp. And at the end, he has this breakdown because all he's thinking is, I could have saved more, right? I don't, I don't remember how many people he ended up saving, but he's, he's, I could have saved this one, and I could have saved this one, and I could have saved more, and I could have saved more. And of course, all anybody around him is feeling is, you know, you did this amazing thing in saving all these people that you did. So when we feel ourselves being overwhelmed by that, we have to remind ourselves to step back or to get some help in stepping back and talking through, okay, let's put this into perspective again. So it's about perspective taking. I did what I could. And what could I do better next time that I'm experiencing something like this, right? So we scenario plan, et cetera. So again, it's about becoming skillful at the exercise of compassion, not just expecting it to happen naturally and our expression of it to be perfect. Because like everything else, we need to be skillful even in things that are natural. That's how they go from being immature to mature. Another thing we can do is to practice on one person at a time, okay? Identify somebody or a group of people or whatever it is and say, you know what? I can't be compassionate to everybody. I'm going to try and help this person or this group of people. And this is a great quote quote from the Dalai Lama that I read uh, as I was thinking about this uh, program. We must use a real individual as the focus of our meditation and then enhance our compassion and loving kindness toward others. We work on one person at a time. Otherwise, we might end up meditating on compassion for all in a very general sense with no specific focus or power to our meditation. And though, even though he's practicing about meditation there, I would say that that applies to our actual practice Mm -hmm. of compassion as well. Don't try to be all compassionate to all people. 
Okay. Humans can't get there in one leap. Pick a person at a time, pick a, a area at a time, pick a group at a time, work on that and build up your compassion muscles. And that's how we get better at it. Yeah. So when we're working with strategies, in this case with type two, um, with uh, striving to feel connected, uh, I was saying that when we work with the awareness to action process, we start to kind of clarify the the strategy. It doesn't. It's not required to get rid of it. We just work on it so that it's more flexible and permeable. And so, if for example, I rewrite the story of what it means to feel connected from it's interesting because it what came up for me it's something related to point four but you'll see how this works um like i will feel more connected to the people i love if i can learn how to say no to certain things uh especially when it, they go against what i need to do to take care of myself so rewriting that i can understand better what I need and without losing connection, in fact, will be a healthier connection because I'm taking care of myself. So I'm working on nurturing also individuation here, but compassion will follow because I will be able to look at the other person with less resentment, for example. Twos tend to uh, or sometimes experience this resentment because these people are kind of almost forcing me to do stuff that I don't want to do because they ask me to. Uh, so the union they feel is not that clear, clear in sense of clarity or like pure or that without obstacles. There is noise in that relationship because I feel this resentment. If I take care of my own needs, Understanding that I will feel more connected with these people. At the end of the day, I'll get closer to real compassion. And we've been focusing a lot more in the realm of like compassion towards others. But I think this can also easily be translated to compassion to yourself as well. The parts of, your, of yourself that you are, that you don't like or that um, you're trying to avoid that... <laughs> To be more connected with yourself requires a level of compassion to all parts of yourself. Um, and then you can set up better boundaries with external relationships and have more vitality to show compassion to others outside of you. If you're ostracizing parts of yourself, you're going to ostracize people outside of you as well. No, I, I just I, I think you're absolutely right there. It's if, if we can't show compassion to ourselves then our compassion to others will never be genuine because there's, a, like Maria Jose is saying, there's always going to be some resentment built into it that will undermine that compassion. Yeah. So seeing ourselves as flawed and needy and imperfect humans who, you know, need forgiveness on occasion, need uh, a hug on occasion is the best starting point for developing compassion absolutely all right folks well thanks for listening uh, make sure next week we got point four so we all know you love you love the four episodes so here's your fix <laughs> for the right. month it, 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 it'll be it'll be our most listened <laughs> to episode yes, yes. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.
All right. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. Thank you.